Well, uh, just to kind of frame our time this morning, um, I was having a conversation with some friends this week about the amount of email in our unread email in our inboxes. So it's a bunch of my cycling buddies. Austin's part of this group. Um, we have this WhatsApp chat group. There's like 30 of us in it. And it's like all cycling chatter and stuff. And so one of them, uh, my friends posted a picture. I don't know if you saw it. You're probably off. You're probably doing better things with your life than I am. But um, posted this picture of an email that he'd received uh, from a, a, fr- a bike frame builder named Ira in, in Portland. Uh, owns this company called Breadwinner Cycles. He built his dad a new custom bicycle. And the, the bike shop had been broken into and all the bikes were stolen. So we're commiserating together about this and... This friend posted this picture of this email. You can put it up. You might be able to see it. You don't need to worry about the words. But he posted it saying, hey, they found the bike. And we're kind of talking about that. We're like, awesome. Except for this one friend. This one friend said, this is, that's awesome. But what I'm trying to figure out is how you get 162 unread emails in your inbox. <laughs> see the upper left? And, and that, that, of course, started this really fascinating and funny conversation. Because... Um, my original friend then reacted and said, I've been at a conference all week, and I actually have 539 unread emails. And then another friend said, well, you should see my wife's email inbox. I've got 18, she's got 18,746. I'm trying to figure out when the mail app just truncates to a lot. And then another friend posted another screenshot, put this other one up, of his home screen. And look at his email. He has 70,000 unread emails, not to mention all the other notifications on his. And he literally just said, clearly, none of you have kids. And that, that conversation is clearly hilarious and really, like, too real to life. But it, it, actually, it actually got to me thinking about, like, the, the, this is how indicative you can, there you go, uh, how indicative these, this conversation is of this new era that we're all living in, which is to say this, that without realizing it, most of us are living what's called the, react, or the reactive life, reactionary life. Um, we're living lives pecking away at the many inboxes all around us, and just trying to stay afloat. We're like treading water, and we're trying to just react to the latest thing, the latest email, the latest text message, the latest tweet, the latest whatever. And as a consequence, what studies are showing, if you read about this kind of thing, is that our ability to prioritize and control and remain in control and, and stay focused, remain present with the people that are actually in our lives, in the physical world we inhabit, our family, at our home, our workplace, just, if we're just alone for 5, 10, or 15 minutes so being alone with yourself is slowly and steadily deteriorating uh, because of this unyielding flow of incoming communication. We've begun to prioritize things like being informed and staying connected over and against time and space to think and sleep and laugh and pay attention to those in our lives. How many of this is true of? Like you're like, yep, that's my life. And the key here is having relinquished control in this way, we're becoming slaves to whatever it is that's coming in, our inbox, our social media feed the alerts on our mobile devices. You're a slave to that. And because you're a slave to that, you're less free. And by being less free, you're less human. Becoming less human, uh, I'm going to just switch it out. I'm less human. (laughs) All right, so you're becoming less human. Now, interestingly, this isn't new. This is not a new phenomenon. We think of it as like a 21st century thing. It's taken on a new form in the 21st century with smartphones and things. But reactivity is an age-old problem. Um, we even find it in the life and ministry of Jesus. So in the reading from Luke 4, we see that in the very earliest days of his ministry, this is kind of episode one, you could say, um, people are continually astonished by Jesus' teaching. They're amazed. They are healed. They are delivered. He has incredible authority. 
Um, he's got growing influence. And because of that, we see this mounting pressure on Jesus. So you see that? There's this desire. The more and more people encounter Jesus, the more and more of it they want of his time and his power and of his healing. And they want, like, literally in, in 42, chapter 442, they wanted to keep him from leaving them. If Jesus had a mobile device, it would look like my friend's home screen. Like, he would have so many alerts and unread messages, and his life was so full of demands. And yet, here's the difference between Jesus and you, or Jesus and me. Uh, Jesus' life and our lives. We see, what we see with Jesus, in the midst of pressure and noise, amidst all these growing demands on his time and for his presence, he doesn't react. He doesn't cave to the pressure. Instead, he lives and invites would-be disciples, you and me, uh, and calls us toward a life of response rather than reactivity. Now, you might be going, well, that's just the same thing. It's just the flip side to the same coin. Reaction, response, they're just synonyms in the dictionary. And I'd say, no, they're not. The, they're fundamentally different ways of living. One, in which you fall prey to the tyranny of the urgent. That's reaction. The other, uh, in which you're, you're able to be deeply grounded, and because you're grounded, available to others, to God, and ultimately a resource for healing. That's response. Very different than reaction. So do you want to live that kind of life? Like, do you want to be a person that's responsive rather than reactive? I don't see any hands. Do, who, does anybody? Because I can be done. Okay, good. Um, I mean, maybe you love 70,000 emails. I just I saw that. I was like, stress level went up to 11. So today, Jesus is going to show us in these encounters, there's a various, like a day in the life of Jesus, Luke 4, various encounters we're going to observe a couple ingredients or disciplines, you might say, that are necessary to live a more responsive life. We're just going to look at two things, two aspects or two disciplines that Jesus um, engages in. So the first, we're going to look at the importance of his pursuit of solitude. And then the second we're going to look at is the depth of his identity as God's son, okay? So it's, it's kind of foundational. And, and he, he interacts with a lot of different people. We talked about this being a series about encounters. This is going to be kind of a broad kind of foundational sermon for this series. So um, there we go. So the first, we're going to look at the importance of his pursuit of solitude. Um, and it's at the end of the passage, verse 42. It's this verse that reveals what actually is at the root of Jesus' ability to respond to God and, and around this pressure around him. So it says in verse 42, early in the morning, um, when it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a solitary place. Okay, we're going to, we're going to really land there. So what's at the root of, of Jesus' ability to res- live a responsive life? It's this fact that in the midst of pressure and stress, when things got busy, Jesus got alone. When things get busy, Jesus gets alone. And not just alone, listen to this, he got up while it was dark and went to a solitary place. We have to realize that the Greek word used here for solitary is is the same word that's used earlier in Luke for for desert or wilderness. So it's the word eremos. And therefore, we're not saying Jesus just happened to find a quiet room like to have a little quiet time, you know, his in-laws are staying with him. So he went to his like a little quiet room upstairs. He went to an uninhabited place far away from the place he'd been staying. So he went for a hike, (laughs) a journey. In fact, hours before the disciples get up, he's out. So he's likely hours away from them, if you can think of it that way. And the key here is that with wilderness, it forms the canvas onto which his entire life story is written. It's the place that Jesus goes and is found here. It's the place where he's just come from. He was tested in the wilderness for 40 days by the devil. It's the place in which he's baptized. In that way, it's the, it's the, the site for which Jesus' life really takes place. In fact, if you take a wide-angle view of the story of God, it's also the place in which the story of God's really written. So the Hebrews in the Old Testament passed through the Red Sea, a kind of baptism of sorts, 
They enter the waters as slave people. They emerge as free men and women in, in their new life. And what do they do? Forty years in the wilderness. Forty years. They're tempted. They're tested. They learn how to live a life of freedom, not as Egyptian slaves anymore, but as, as God's free people. They learn how to depend on God, and they learn how God cares for them. They learn what it means to follow God and then and obey God. They learn the commandments out in the wilderness. Everything that would form their entire life happens in the wilderness before they go into the land of, of Canaan. And now Jesus, the Messiah, who they've been waiting for generations for, shows up in the wilderness. You think God's trying to say something? Like, wilderness matters. He begins his ministry there. He returns again and again and again throughout his life to the wilderness. And thus, it's, it's, we're not to think of wilderness as just a place for a little camp out or a place that's bad, like this uninhabited, desolate, desolate sort of dangerous place. It was empty of vegetation. You couldn't eat a good meal there. There was no culture there, human culture, nothing that we deem as life, quote-unquote life. There's no rock music there. There's no carnivals there. There's no amusement parks there. It was empty of life, but it's full of God. I mean, God shaped his entire story around wilderness. It's filled with God's presence, which is just radical, which is and why it's nothing else is more important to Jesus as you read his story. He's always going to the wilderness because that's where God is in the wilderness. Nothing can squeeze it out. Nothing is a higher priority than him. And so the question for us, I guess, as we begin is, where do you go when life gets busy? When, when the demands in your life increase, pressure's on you, you know, opportunities are growing at work, family schedules are off, off the charts, uh, your email inbox is full, you're facing a real crisis, what do you do? Where do you go? Or put it another way, when you and I come to one of these productivity times, all this opportunity, right? And it's so busy, everybody wants us. What soul work? Or let's say you go to a less opportunity time, like a really hard time in life, a dark place. What soul work are you doing? What kind of soul work do you do? Where do you go? How do you structure your time in those times so that God can work on you? Jesus, do you react like the disciples? Hey, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. <laughs> like they're trying to hold on to him. Or do you say, do you respond like, Jesus, I got to go away. We must go to another place. Um, I'll tell you what, I typically react. I make to-do lists. I'm a one on the Enneagram. I burn the candle at both ends. I fill my day off with activity. So 40 hours becomes 50, becomes 60. Um, I sleep less. I pray less. I prioritize exercise less. I even don't sit down for meals. I stand up and eat my meals while I'm doing email. I mean, literally, this is me. What about you? (laughs) When the going gets tough, do you get going? (laughs) What do you do? And Jesus, he's standing in the middle of an opportunity that's going to change the world. Listen to this. His opportunities were literally going to change the course of history, and yet he still found time and took time to to go out in solitude. Solitude was way too important to Jesus to be squeezed out by a mere email, right? The busier he gets, the more he prays. The vastly greater his opportunities increase, the more he goes into solitude. Solitude is what grounds his life. But here's the deal. We're going to transition to the second thing. It's not solitude for the sake of solitude. He's not some mystic or monk leaving really important work to be undone, you know, some secret spiritual place. I mean, there's some benefit to just being alone. I mean, that's good. But that's not why Jesus got alone, just to be alone. He's not like, oh, I'm so tired. I need to be alone. That's not it. This is what makes the uh, Christian faith so extraordinary and unique, actually. There, there are faiths like Buddhism that are emptying traditions, you're emptying, trying to empty your life. And there's faiths like Christianity that are filling traditions. He 
is showing us what it looks like to have his life filled and oriented, as, as Richard Rohr says, the container of his life filled with meaning. So you're probably asking, with what? What, what meaning? Like, what, would that, what does that look like to have his life filled? And this is, that's a great question. So that's why we're going to go to number two here. Uh, he, he grounds his life in his identity as a son of, the son of God. So it's important to note here, this entire episode that we just read, this long day in Jesus' life, is set in a context. And I already said that's wilderness. But more than being merely wilderness, it's this identity in which Jesus, uh, this, this context in which Jesus' identity is revealed and shaped really critically. So in the book of Luke, guess what comes right before chapter 4? Chapter 3. Cha-ching! And in chapter 3, I know, there you go. There's your throwaway for the day. Uh, chapter 3 of Luke is really important. Because if you just turn the page back there, that's where the ministry of John the Baptist begins. But also, it's where, if you, in, in Luke's gospel, you have, well, all the gospels, but Jesus is baptized. And then, this, then the genealogy of Jesus is laid out. Man, read that genealogy of Jesus. I'm not going to talk about it in Luke, but it's, it's like the number of times son shows up in that genealogy is so profound. But the baptism, uh, it's this powerful, when you read it through the lens of identity formation, especially like Christ's and your own, so powerful. So what happens when Jesus is baptized? Think about this. The Holy Spirit, we know this story, right? From Sunday school, you probably did this on a flannel graph. Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Um, and boy, Jesus is going to need it because he's about to get just slammed in the face by the devil. In just a few verses, he's going to face backbreaking ministry. Just this day in Luke 4, just backbreaking work, all encompassing, all absorbing, all sorts of opposition and persecution later in his life. He's going to need the Holy Spirit, right? He needs an extra dose of this. But notice how the power of the Spirit comes onto him. I mean, how does the Spirit come to Jesus' life? It doesn't come down in this abstract way. Like, it's not a jolt or a bolt. It's not an infusion of the Spirit. It's this direct, clear, personal communication regarding his identity. The Spirit's power descends not as an abstract thing, but deep into his soul. Here, listen to this, Luke 3, 21 and 22. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And, and he's praying as he's being baptized, and the heavens open. And the Holy Spirit descends on him in a bodily form like a dove. And then a voice comes from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased. You've all heard this. Now notice it doesn't say, this is my son. It says, you are my son. This is so important. God is speaking directly to Jesus. If nobody else is there, it doesn't matter. Because God is saying to Jesus, I need you to know who you are before you begin this work. He's hearing this in his own being. And if you haven't heard that, put the brakes on right now on your faith. You need to hear this. The power of the Spirit is, is an assurance of sonship or daughterhood. It comes directly, clearly. It's all about identity. That's what the Spirit's all about. And that's what empowers Jesus, the Spirit in his life, speaking this word. It shows him who he is to then go out and respond to God day after day and instead of react to the world. And this is really interesting, actually, if you break this down about what the Spirit is saying, actually saying to Jesus. Uh, something you and I don't realize, but the early readers of this text would have realized, Luke 3, is that God is actually quoting Scripture to Jesus' heart. He's quoting Scripture, two Scriptures specifically, Old Testament. The first is from Psalm 2 where it says, uh, early, every Jewish reader, where it says, you are my son, every Jewish reader, the audience would have known this as they heard this from God. 
that they know this psalm. This is what they did in their Sunday schools. They learned these psalms. And God said in this psalm, we're told that God's going to someday send a great messianic king. This is the first messianic psalm. This king is going to defeat evil and is going to set the world straight and align and restore the world the way God created it. A good king. And so he's a figure of incredible power. And so God is saying to Jesus, you are my son. He's revealing you have incre- it's a public declaration of Jesus' kingship. You are the king. I mean, wow. Imagine hearing that as a young man or young woman. You are the king. You have incredible power. The second half, though, is, is crazy. It's from Isaiah 42. It's a quote that's completely from a different part of Scripture, a different kind of prophetic part of Scripture. It's repeated in Isaiah 46 and Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 53. And this is where Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant. Remember these? You've probably read these around uh, Christmas time. Completely different type of kind of shadowy, mysterious figure um, who Isaiah will say that God's going to send someday, but going to be a different kind of king, different kind of figure in history than Psalm 2. So the voice of the Spirit's quoting Isaiah 42.1 specifically and says, This is my servant in whom I'm well pleased, in whom my soul is well pleased, okay? But then it goes on, if you read these other chapters, and it says that this servant is a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. This person is going to be despised, rejected, pierced for our transgressions, scorned, hated, abused. And what this means is that we see in Christ an astonishing combination of traits that no one in history thought could be possible in one person, a composite. Because you see the rabbis, scholars, the students, all the people gathered, they knew about Psalm 2. They knew this king was coming, and they were praying for this king, and they were rejoicing, Hosanna in the highest, our king has come. They also knew about Isaiah 42, and they're like, well, that's okay if that's some suffer like, like John the Baptist or, or Cyrus. They thought it was this guy Cyrus. That's good, but, but nobody in their right mind thought it could be God, the same person. Nobody thought that God could come in human form, triumph over evil through suffering and weakness and death. And that's why Paul says the gospel in, in one of his letters is foolishness, a stumbling block. It's, it's why it's, it's scandal. And that's why Paul calls it that, because nobody thought that you could have a person that fulfills both those roles. It's ridiculous to think of a mighty king who has power to conquer evil and yet also suffers and is hated. It's, it's ridiculous. You don't do that. Leaders who are hated are just hated. <laughs> leaders who are great are great. You don't have great leaders who are hated. And, and so God is in the, in the baptism of Jesus, assuring Jesus of his identity as he's coming into his life, saying, you're my son with whom I'm pleased. You're going to be a great king who's hated. <laughs> and he's expounding scripture to Jesus' heart. And it's a huge paradox. And, and it's equipping Jesus to learn how to respond. Now, I can hear somebody in the room probably saying, great. <laughs> That's Jesus, though. I'm not Jesus. And... Uh, what is, how does his paradox of his life change, in fact, my life? And what does this have to do with me today? And I'll just say everything. Of course, it always does. Because you know what? Where does Jesus go after this? You know, where does he spend the rest of his life? Does he spend the rest of his life saying, I have this special father-son relationship, God the Father. He said to me, I'm his son. Ba-bam! You know, I'm like this special superhuman. You're not. So I can overcome devils. I can overcome demons. I can heal people. You can't. You're going to need me. Never says that. Like I said, Luke 4 requires Luke 3. And eventually, guess what? Luke 4 becomes Luke 5. 
and then Luke 6. And you just read the story, and Jesus spends his entire life, the rest of the book of Luke, the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the Bible, the rest of history, calling men and women into father and son, father and daughter, intimate relationships with God. That's what he does. That's why he sticks around after the baptism, I believe, is just to be able to, to roll that red carpet out and say, you, my friends, are sons and daughters of God. Um, Luke 8, for example, it's just right after this story. Again, another time in Jesus' life where he's being pressured from all sides. He's literally walking through a crowd so large it says that the crowd is like crushing Jesus, if you read Luke 8. And it's overpowering him, and there's this woman in the crowd. You've probably heard this story. She's been hemorrhaging from bleeding for 12 years, suffering from some sort of illness. Nobody could heal her. It says nobody could heal her. She's unhealable, untouchable. So she says to herself, I mean, I'm adding words to it, but I think she probably says to herself, I've heard about this Jesus guy. Maybe he'll heal me. This is kind of her last-ditch effort, I think, on life. And so she goes through this crowd, and she can barely reach through, right? And she touches the hem of his robe. And what does Jesus say? Luke eight forty five, who touched me? And of course, everybody's like, everybody. <laughs> but then he says, I know that the power came out of me. Somebody touched me with intention. Somebody touched me with intention. And then he looks to the woman, and she could not go unnoticed. Okay, she's trembling in fear in the presence of all these people. And, uh, man, rather than shaming her and, re- and just kind of reprimanding her in front of people, like I think people generally would do, what does Jesus do? This unclean woman touching a holy man. I mean, he's holy. He says to her, in the midst of all these people, daughter, number one, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He's, he's rolling out this red carpet for her. Hey, yeah, I'm the son of God. It's all good. You're a, you're a son of God, too. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And your faith makes a difference. Your encounter with God makes a difference. It's not just about Jesus. Christ lives in you and through you, but you're not unimportant in that story. You are created in God's image, friends. And so Jesus' message is always that we, too, can be sons and daughters of God. Sonship is, isn't just for him. It's for us. We're adopted. This is what Paul says in Romans. For you did not receive, he's speaking to us, a spirit that makes you a slave to fear. You received a spirit of sonship, or I should add daughterhood, in which you get to cry, Abba, the most intimate word in the Hebrew language, Abba, Daddy. You get to say that to your, you know, there's some grandparents here, you get to say, Papa, Nana. You get to say that to God. The spirit testifies in your spirit that you're children, if you doubt it. Your children, because your children, your heirs, you get to share in the glory of God, just like Jesus does. Right hand of the Father, you're going to be there too. That's amazing. It doesn't get more practical than this. Paul's saying the power of the Spirit is available to each of us in the room. The Spirit that came on Jesus descended on him in in his baptism. And it doesn't work in an abstract way. I know a lot of us, especially at Bethany, you know, we're not super spiritual. (laughs) You know, we, we sing, and I do this too, like, I feel the Spirit moving, kind of nudge a hand up, you know, Uh uh-oh, you know. We're not super spiritual. We think the Spirit works in jolts and bolts, man. It's got to feel amazing. The Spirit, Paul says, and Jesus shows us in his baptism, worked the same way through assurance of identity. That's it. You are a son, you are a daughter. That's how the Spirit empowers you, through clear, direct testimony in your heart, in your mind, in your body, assuring of who you are. That's the Spirit. 
Like I said, Luke 3 without Luke 4, there'd be no, there'd be no book. You have to have those two together. You have to live, you have to, the crux of this whole story of encounter with God is this idea of baptism and identity. So to, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, the divine accolade of sonship, which is the weight of Christ's glory, is also available for us. We experience that same weight of glory. It's, it's heavy yet light. Christ says his burdens are light. Um, we're offered the same divine accolade from God. He, he's just saying to you, I love you. I love you. And if you haven't heard that from God or another human, this is your opportunity. Um, so a while back, I, on some recommendations from some friends, I went to see a therapist. <laughs> you know, um, some of you don't know me very well, but I, there was a, lot, a few years ago, there was a lot of stuff going on in my life, uh, stress. And we were starting Bethany Northeast. I was a little depressed. There were some deep issues kind of around my family of origin, specifically my relationship with my, my parents. Some deep woundedness. And I was kind of carrying that. And so some friends were like, you should go to a therapist. So I did. <laughs> Trying to kind of um, get my life back, you know, find myself. So I'm talking with this therapist, and uh, it became immediately clear to this therapist that all my issues were springing from my deep-seated um, kind of malformed belief in who I am. And so after this one session, we're kind of talking and talking, my therapist posed this hypothetical scenario to me and said, what would your life look like, Jack, if every day, shortly after you got out of bed, your parents called you and just said this, Jack? Hey, Jack, we, <laughs> we know today is a big day. Um, we know you have a lot on your plate. You feel a lot of pressure. Uh, we just wanted you to know that uh, as you face people and you shoulder the burdens you're shouldering, husband, father, pastor, leader, friend, we love you. We love you. We're proud of you. We're for you. Just like I am now, about a half hour later, I'm still crying on the couch uncontrollably. And uh, Jesus procured that for us. For you and me, this divine accolade, son, daughter, I love you. I'm proud of you. As you move into this day, as each of you move into this week, whatever you're moving into, whether it's workplace stuff, family stuff, parenting stuff. Um, it's, thanks. It's, oh, that's a good friend. <laughs> I have another story about that sometime. Somebody, never mind, but it's can take us off the rails. Jesus calling you up. Now, this is why a quiet time matters. And saying, hey, I'm proud of you. I love you that much. And I've noticed, I've noticed as I'm being recalibrated to that truth, I mean, it's taken years now, to my belovedness as I take time each day to hear this heavenly voice say to me, son, I love you. I'm proud of you. You can go into this day with courage. You can go into this day with responsibilities. You can go into it. You don't have to be afraid. I'm less reactive and more responsive. I don't worry about this stuff. My anxiety mounts. Uh, challenges to my loyalty as a coworker in front of my competency. Um, all kinds of stuff comes at you. I mean, you put yourself in your own shoes. When I listen to God's voice, I can say things God can provide, God will protect, God has the power to change me and the situation. God is enough. I don't need any more. I don't need anything from anyone else. In my worst moments, I'm resentful, I'm arrogant, I'm a little passive aggressive. Um, 
But when, I'm, when I hear the voice of the Father, who always, always, always speaks love, when my life revolves around that instead of this, I am free to respond. I can absorb it all and say, you know, that's not true. That's not true of me. It's not true of you. Let me point you to the truth. I can receive. I can extend grace. I can actually trust. Because you know what trust is? Trust is a decision based out of love. You cannot trust someone unless you love them. You cannot have faith unless you have been loved. You will not live a life of faith without love. You and I are sons and, the da- sons and daughters of the King of Heaven, and our Heavenly Father loves us so much and is so proud of us for who we are. And so that's what I want to invite us to do this morning as we respond. Uh, just take a few moments. In the, in the bulletin this morning, I left a little space. Can I see your bulletin real quick? Give it back. But uh, it says, I, number three there, it says, our response, I long to encounter Christ in. A lot of you are facing real big challenges right now. Or you have hopes and expectations. You, you're putting uh, those on yourself, on other people. I want to invite us right now in these moments to put those on God. Imagine this phone call, right, that I imagined. We sing that song, Good, Good Father. Imagine that God is that good, that he's on the phone with you and say, God, I, I long to encounter you this summer, this week, in this. And just put, put words on a page. Start doing that. Put thoughts to an idea, okay? I mean, throughout this series, if we expect that God wants to transform us, we begin there. God, I long to encounter you in. And then uh, as we begin singing afterwards, I'll pray, but I put out our communion table. You could either tear that off, hang on to it, and just keep coming back to it. Tuck it in your Bible at Luke 4. You could lay it here at the kind of the, the ta- our communion table, and Becca and Silas and Andrew and I would love to begin holding you in prayer throughout this summer. You don't have to put a name on there, but you can just let us know. I want to encounter Christ in could be a relationship. It could be in some sort of physical challenge. It could be in work. And then we'd love to hold you in prayer. Okay. Let's take, just take a minute in silence to allow the Spirit now uh, to speak to you personally. God, thanks for giving us everything we need to know to you. Everything. Everything. Most of all, thanks that through Christ we get to be your sons and your daughters. So God, just like you did with Jesus, I and I pray for us, each of us personally, our community, that there would be a direct personal communication this morning, this week, this summer. Um, God, some of us aren't even hearing that because we haven't asked. So I thank you that you've in a space here this morning to ask. Ask and you'll receive, you say, God. So we just ask for an assurance of our identity. Others, God, keep asking. We're that annoying widow. We keep knocking on the door. And uh, we, we aren't hearing you. So we, we ask again, God, and we trust that there's a deep place within us where you're speaking, that your spirit is speaking within our spirits, assuring us of who we are. We long to know who we are in you, God, through you. And so we give your spirit room now to remind us in these moments of worship. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.